everyone. Welcome to the True Path Podcast. I'm so glad you're joining us today. So today we are in session 11, our last session in our study of the book of 1 Peter. And we're discussing chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. Now, I have to admit, I was a bit hesitant at first to discuss verses 1 through 5 of chapter 5 because it's dealing with one specific group of people, pastors or elders or overseers. But then I remembered, what are we always saying in this podcast? That there's nothing in scripture that we can't learn from. So many of the truths in these verses that apply to pastors, we can apply to our own lives. And let's remember what verse 4, 7 told us that we should be alert and clear-minded when we pray. So the more we know about what it takes to be a pastor, the better able we're going to be to pray for our pastors and elders. And I believe the church and pastors in particular are being attacked like never before. So let's make sure that we're praying for them in a wise and clear-minded way. So let's read 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1-14 through 14 in the CSB. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed. Shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not out of greed for money, but eagerly, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory, In the same way, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him, because he cares about you. Be sober-minded and alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. To him be dominion forever. Amen. Through Silvanus, a faithful brother as I consider him, I have written to you briefly in order to encourage you and to to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, as does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So Peter begins the passage, as I mentioned earlier, by addressing pastors or elders. And in verse 1, he appeals to them as a fellow elder. Peter is also a pastor. Just check out Acts chapters 2, 3, and 4. So he's not someone who's giving instructions without having personal experience. Verse 1 also tells us that Peter has the authority to instruct them based on the fact that he was a witness of Christ's sufferings. His words are not just hearsay. He was personally instructed by Jesus himself. And he is now writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Verse 2 says that pastors should be shepherds of God's flock. So what are the characteristics of a good shepherd? Well, a good shepherd cares for every aspect of the flock. I mean, he doesn't just feed them. 
but he leads them, protects them, shows kindness to them. And in the same way, pastoring is not a single faceted role. Good shepherds are in tune with their flock. They sense the needs of the flock and go about meeting those needs. Verse 2 also says that they should serve not because they have to, but because they're willing to. Our attitudes can be very different when we're doing something because we want to, rather than because we have to. And what did verse 4-1 say about our attitudes? That we should arm ourselves with the same attitude as Christ. And Jesus has a willing and joyful attitude. And really, I mean, do we truly do our best when we're forced to do something when we have to? I mean, we're much more inclined to give 100% when we're willing participants. It also says in verse 2 that they should shepherd not out of greed for money, but eager to serve. So eagerness should come from a heart that is surrendered to God, not because of what, what might be the reward. The eagerness and joy and reward should come from the serving itself. And that's the beautiful thing about serving the Lord. I mean, God blesses us with joy and fulfillment and purpose while serving him. Verse 3 also instructs pastors not to lord it over those entrusted to them, but being examples to the flock. In Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 4 and 5, it gives us an example of what happens when an elder becomes consumed with power and lords it over those in his care. Verse 5 of Ezekiel says they were scattered for lack of a shepherd. They became food for all the wild animals when they were scattered. When a church leader doesn't shepherd his flock properly, they become vulnerable to false teaching and false living. But contrast this to what a good shepherd the Lord does in verses 11 through 16 of Ezekiel 34. He rescues them from the places they were scattered. He tends them and leads them to good pastures. He will seek the lost, bring back the strays, bandage the injured, and strengthen the weak. Just as the Lord is the example for pastors, pastors are examples to us, the flock, the congregation. And if they follow the chief shepherd or Jesus' example, then they will receive, as verse 4 describes, the unfading crown of glory. Now, the Greek word for crown is Stephanos, which refers to the, which is the name for the garland of victory that was placed on the head of the winner in the Grecian games. But this crown will never fade or die. Verses 5 and 6 go on to say, In the same way you who are younger, be subject to the elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time. So the reference in verse 5 to those who are younger, this is most likely a reference to subordinate members of the church, not necessarily younger in age. And once again, God is using Peter's personality and experience to convey his message. Peter is now an old man. And here he is addressing those who are younger, physically or spiritually, to be submissive. Peter, who cut off the ear of a guard in the Garden of Gethsemane, who spoke out of turn and overstepped his bounds at the transfiguration of Jesus, the one who denied knowing Christ. Look how far he has come. Look how far God has brought him. 
he can now give advice because he's been there and he knows personally the value in learning from those with more experience. May we also learn from Peter's life and example that we can never go too far out of God's reach. We can never go too far to turn around. God is in the business of restoration and reformation. And if he can do it for Peter, then he can do it for you. He can do it for me. All it takes is what verse 6 says, humbling ourselves before God. Finally coming to the realization that living for ourselves just isn't working and asking God to help us live for him. Begin making choices according to what God wants, not what would bring us the most happiness. We should also clothe ourselves with humility toward one another from verse 5. Now, scholars believe that Peter could be recalling the time that Jesus humbled himself by washing the disciples' feet. In John 13, it says Jesus laid aside his outer clothing and put on a towel, tied it around himself, and washed their feet. Now, what's interesting is that John 13 begins by describing the depth of Jesus' love for us. So it was because of his love for us and his love for God that he humbled himself. That's why we should humble ourselves, because of our love for God and each other. Now, humility is a challenge for everyone. I mean, I don't think anyone is inherently humble. But it's when we truly begin to adopt an attitude of love for God and for others that we begin to put their needs before our own. That's what true humility is, regarding others before ourselves. I like what one of my commentaries said about the idea of clothing yourself with humility. It said originally clothing came from pride. Adam and Eve were naked in the garden and they had no shame. It was only after their pride of wanting to be like God caused them to sin. And that's when they became ashamed and needed clothing. But God turns this idea on its head when he says we should clothe ourselves with humility Because as verse 5 also tells us, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. It's when we humble ourselves before God that we're in the proper position to receive God's grace. When we're filled with pride, we're not going to recognize anything as coming from God. We only see ourselves, our own accomplishments, our own abilities. I mean, how can a person receive God's grace when they're consumed with thoughts of themselves, their own personal happiness? And not only that, but a prideful heart is a hard heart, and it brings dissension and discord into the family of God. Not only does God give us grace when we humble ourselves before each other, but he will at the proper time exalt those who are humble before him. Verse 6 specifically says to humble yourselves before the mighty hand of God. References to the hand of God indicate God's protection his deliverance from enemies, his guidance. Humbling ourselves is difficult. I mean, it's not a human being's natural state. Humility can make us feel vulnerable. It can leave us open for attack, ridicule, to be taken advantage of. But I believe God is telling us that we can humble ourselves before him because he will keep us safe. He will keep us protected. We can place ourselves in the precarious position of humility because God is powerful enough to hold us and keep us secure. 
and he will exalt us or lift us up at the proper time or in due time. There will come a time when we will be shown appreciation and blessings for our commitment, dedication, and humility toward our God. But it's not going to be according to our timetable, according to his, because God's timing is always perfect, and he knows the best time to lift us up, the time that we will recognize it and appreciate it the most. And because God's mighty hand of protection and deliverance is upon us, we can, as verse 7 says, cast all our cares upon him because he cares about you. So notice, God doesn't just care about us collectively as a group, as a church, or as a family of God. He cares about you, specifically, as an individual. And if he cares about you as an individual, then he cares about what you care about. It says, cast all your cares on the Lord. And if that's the case, then is there anything that's too small or insignificant to talk to the Lord about? I love the imagery of the word cast. From the Greek, it means to throw upon. Just like a fisherman throws a net upon the water, we can throw whatever is on our minds and hearts boldly upon God, the one who cares about us more than anyone else ever will. This implies that God desires a close, intimate relationship with us. I mean, think about it. People don't often want to know about other people's problems. You usually only want to know about the problems of someone you care deeply about. And we're most likely going to share our problems with the people who are closest to us. And that's what God wants with us, a bond, a close, trusting relationship. Because when we cast our cares upon the Lord, that in and of itself is an act of humility. Revealing that we have a problem reveals the fact that we're weak in certain areas. I mean, if we didn't have a weakness in that area, then it wouldn't be a problem. We're revealing that there are certain areas of our life that we can't handle on our own. And what does 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10 say about weakness? God's power is made perfect in weakness. So do you see the process going on in the simple act of telling God our problems? We're giving God the chance to reveal his strength in us. We give him our cares and he transforms them and us into displays of his strength. There is much more going on here when we cast our cares upon God than just us unburdening ourselves so we'll feel better, although that does happen. And in verses 8 and 9, it goes on to say, Be sober-minded. Be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. So we must make our cares known to the Lord, but we mustn't get so caught up in our problems that we forget who the battle is against. That is exactly what the devil wants. For us to be so focused on ourselves and our problems and cares that we lose focus on who the true adversary is, the devil. John describes the devil as a liar and a murderer in John 8:44, And here, Peter describes him as a devouring lion. Now, notice the connection that Peter is drawing in verses 6 through 8. 
When we humble ourselves before the Lord and recognize that God is big enough and strong enough to handle all of our cares, and that the creator of the universe cares so much about us that he wants to transform our weaknesses into strengths, then we're going to grow. We're going to grow in strength and humility. And godly strength with humility is a devastating combo to the devil. God's strength gives us the ability to do things for his kingdom we never thought we could. And godly humility ensures that he will get the glory. The two things Satan despises most. Seeing God's kingdom grow and become stronger and glory going to God. So he's on the prowl, doing whatever he can to prevent us from maturing and growing in our faith. The devil may not be able to devour the soul of a Christian, but he can certainly devour our witness, our confidence, our strength. I think a lion is a pretty accurate description of the devil. Because what kind of prey does a lion usually hunt? The weak ones. The one standing alone, separated from the group. And in the same way, the devil is an opportunist. I mean, he attacks when we are at our weakest point, when we are far away from God and fellow believers. That is when we are the most vulnerable. So how do we resist him? Well, verse 9 tells us by remaining firm in the faith. James 4, 7 also says, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. If we remain firm in our faith by reading the words of the Lord and following the words of the Lord and maintaining a relationship with him, then we can stand against the devil. What we have is stronger than what he has. And we can be encouraged by the fact that we're not alone in our struggle to resist Satan because our fellow believers throughout the world, they're struggling with us. We are a part of the family of God, a household of faith, and we can stand taller knowing that we stand united with others across the globe who are also fighting the good fight of faith. We can stand with confidence because as verses 10 and 11 tell us, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. To him be dominion forever. Amen. So God is the God of all grace. The meaning of grace is receiving what we don't deserve. We don't deserve to be saved, but because of Jesus' great love for us, we are. We don't deserve to be called to his eternal glory, but because of Christ's love for us, we are. And if being called to eternal glory isn't enough, Christ will also restore, establish, strengthen, and support us while we suffer here on earth. And notice he says the suffering is only a little while, while the glory is eternal. We may be tempted to think that we don't deserve this suffering, but look at what we get. Jesus himself intervenes on our behalf with restoration, support, and strength. And there's eternal glory waiting for us in the future. Now, Peter closes the letter in verses 12 through 14 by saying, Through Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly in order to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, as does Mark, my son, 
Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So Peter mentions Silvanus and Mark as being with him at the time of writing this letter. Now, most scholars agree that this is the same Mark who wrote the New Testament gospel. Peter also mentions that his words are the true grace of God. So this letter is the inspired word of God. Therefore, we should consider it as such and stand firm in it. Peter also sends greetings from she who is in Babylon. Now, most scholars believe that the term Babylon could be a cryptic reference to the church in Rome, since historical evidence does place Peter in Rome during the last years of his life. The book of Revelation also refers to Rome as Babylon. And in verse 14, Peter closes his letter by encouraging love and peace among fellow believers in Christ. So, in the book of 1 Peter, we see he manages to pack a lot into a few short chapters. I think if I had to sum it all up, it would be what a Christian life looks like in very practical terms. Peter describes how a believer should conduct themselves in the workplace, in their community, in their church, and in their homes. And in every scenario, it involves humility, love for God, and love for others. And that sometimes living for God is going to bring about suffering. But even in that, believers can rejoice and not give up because God, because God sees our pain and he's going to strengthen us in it and one day deliver us from it. And that is reason to rejoice, to praise the Lord and look forward to our future. Thank you so much for joining me today. God bless you.